Several weeks ago, we started off by taking a look at the first question, and that was why it's important to understand what you believe. And then we looked at what is truth. And then we took a look at the third question, which was who am I and where did I come from? Last week, we took a look at why is this world so messed up? Why am I so messed up, okay? Today, we're going to take a look at the fifth question, which is the solution. What is the solution to the world's problems? Well, if you think about it, there is an unlimited amount of answers to that question. But the problem is this. The world doesn't deal with the root. You see, the world's approach is different from God's approach. God likes to go for the root. He wants to pull out the root where the world likes just to kind of cut off the top. And there are seven popular approaches to the world's problems. One of them we're in right now, and that is the political approach. This is where people seek to solve the world's problems by creating laws. The truth of the matter is some people really believe that government, not God, is the answer to man's problems. Now, I call this salvation by legislation. The only problem with legislation is that, yes, it can cause people to conform, but it doesn't change their character. The second approach is what I call the educational approach. And this one says that the problems in the world that we are experiencing are the result of ignorance. If we could just all be better educated, this world would be a better place. Now, we're all for education, but not we don't believe in salvation by education. Folks, there are a lot of educated idiots out there, aren't there, okay? You can change a person's mind, but you can't change their character. So we don't believe in that. Then the third approach is a financial approach. These people think in financial terms. These people believe, you know what, if we can just raise the minimum wage, if we could just raise people's salary, if we could just give them a better income, it would solve the world's problems. Now, I call this salvation by compensation. And yet this one doesn't work. Because if it did, the happiest people in our world would be billionaires, and they're not happy. The fourth approach is the psychological approach. And this one says, you and I just need to think uh, in such a way so, so as to feel good about ourselves. I call this salvation by actualization, okay? As if the goal in life is happiness. Folks, the goal in life is not happiness. The goal in life is, isn't our comfort, okay? The goal in life is about God. We have been made by God and we've been made for God. The fourth approach is a sociological approach to the world's problems. And this one says, you know what, let's just change the social structures of society. Let's redefine family. Let's redefine marriage, okay? If we do that, then everything is going to be okay. In fact, the world started experimenting socially back in the beginning of the 20th century. And the result was that millions, and I mean millions of people, died. And so people began to realize that man's problem is deeper than salvation by association. And then sixthly is the biological approach. And this one says, you know what? What we're gonna do is we're gonna focus on the human body. We're gonna create the perfect body. And so now there's all kinds of research 
uh, their research on genes and stem cell research and cloning and, and the genome project and, and gene mapping, all these kinds of things. And all these things are to create the perfect body with the goal of coming up with a pill that will solve everyone's problems. I call that salvation by medication. And that doesn't work, okay? Now, each of these, I think it's obvious, have a role. In fact, folks, they have an important role. I believe in all of those things. But they don't deal with the root. You see, the problem is that we need to have a change of heart. Uh, we've got to change the heart of people. And so the biblical approach, God's way of dealing with the world's problems, is changing hearts. I call this salvation by transformation. And it starts in the heart. The fact is, only a changed heart can change a person. And only a changed person can change a marriage. And only a changed marriage can change a family. And only a changed family can change a church, a community, can change a world. It starts in the heart. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to take a look at what changes the heart. Because the human heart has disease. We have, a, a, we have heart disease. And when I say that, I'm not talking about physical heart disease. What we have is a spiritual heart disease. And so we're going to take a look at it. And this heart disease comes in a lot of different forms. One of the forms that heart disease comes in is this, guilt. And to be honest with you, all of us deal with guilt. Everyone is walking around with guilt. And why is that? Well, we've talked about this before in this series, and that is because we all have flops, failures, and fumbles. And the deal with guilt, though, is this. You can't feel good and guilty at the same time. That's kind of like mixing oil and water. And the symptom of guilt, of this form of heart disease, is worthlessness. A lot of people look in the mirror and look at themselves as a piece of you-know-what, okay? Guilt and or good and guilt don't go together. The second form of heart disease is compulsion. And compulsion says, you know what? I know what I'm doing is, isn't good. It's not good for me, but guess what? I'm gonna continue to do it. And those habits that we continue to do, guess what? They work against us. They work against our life. They work against our relationships. They work against our bodies. They work against us. And the symptom of this form of heart disease is powerlessness. I can't do anything about it. The third form of heart disease is this, is alienation. And alienation says, you know what, I feel disconnected. And a lot of people do. They feel disconnected from God, disconnected from their spouse, from their family, from, from, from the world at large. And the symptom of this disconnection is loneliness. I just feel lonely. And if the truth were known, a lot of people have never experienced what I would call an intimate soul-to-soul -soul relationship with anybody. And so alienation creates loneliness. The fourth form of heart disease is confusion. And, and confusion creates the symptom of aimlessness. In other words, guess what? I don't know where I've come from. I don't know where I'm at. And I sure in the world don't know where I'm going. 
A lot of people in this world are just drifting through life. There is this sense of loneliness because you know what? There's confusion in the heart. The last one, and this one is universal, is worry. Worry is a universal heart disease. Folks, I have traveled the world over. In fact, I've been around the world several times, okay? And in every culture that I have gone to, this one exists. And the symptom is restlessness, okay? Maybe you've experienced that. <laughs> I call it stewing without doing. You were up all night stewing and stewing and worrying about something that never even came to pass. You been there? Okay. It's a universal heart disease. Now, the, what, now, like worry or like guilt, worry and, and good don't go together. It's like oil and water. You can't be happy. You can't experience the good life when you are filled with anxiety. Now, folks, when you and I look into our world and we see all these various forms of heart disease, it is not a pretty picture. But I've got good news for us. Jesus Christ has come to transform people's hearts. He is a heart specialist. So how does he do that? In light of communion, in light of the holidays that we're coming into, how does Jesus bring peace into our life and into our world? Well, let me set it up by just saying, putting it this way. What do you think is the most universal symbol throughout the world? Starbucks? McDonald's? I'd vote for that one. I always look for it when I'm traveling the world over. I know I can get a good cup of coffee and a good hamburger, okay? McDonald's, CNN, a stop sign? You see, if you answered in that way, guess what? You're wrong. The most common universal symbol throughout the world is the Christian cross. Did you know that? There are billions of crosses on churches, in cemeteries. Folks, how many crosses can you count in your jewelry drawer that you have that you wear as hopefully as a symbol and not a decoration? When I see people wearing a cross, I always ask, hey, are you wearing that as a symbol or are you wearing that as decoration? Literally, there are billions of crosses throughout the world. Why is the cross so important? Why is it a symbol of hope? Well, it's because of what Jesus did on the cross. When Jesus went to the cross, he defeated five, and really more, but five of our biggest problems. And we're going to take a look at that today in light of communion. If someone comes up to you and asks you, and someone did. I'll never forget. I was open-air preaching down at Western Kentucky State University. This was back when I was 20, and I was really radical, okay? And, uh, and I was preaching on one corner, and there was a communist on the other corner. I'll never forget the guy said, hey, Jesus died. I said, yeah, but Lennon did too. Yeah, but Jesus died. I said, yeah, but he's not in a grave. He's not in a tomb or a, a grave like Lennon is. We can still go and look at Lennon. Jesus has risen. Today, Jesus has given us several symbols. One of them is the cross. And through the cross, we understand five benefits of living the good life. And the first one is this, replacement. 
And replacement says that he took my punishment, which I deserved, okay? He was my substitute. Take a look at Romans chapter 3 and verse 25. God sent Christ Jesus to take the punishment for our sins, to end all of God's anger against us. Jesus came along and says, guess what? I'll change places with you. Now, what does this mean? Simply this, and we talked about this in weeks before, that all of us have flops, failures, and fumbles. If you go 40 miles an hour in a 20-mile-an-hour school zone, you will get a ticket for $256, I know. (laughs) When you break man's laws, you will receive man's penalty. When you break God's law, you will receive God's penalty. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. That means I deserve to die. That means you deserve to die. Folks, that is bad news. But the good news is that someone has died in your place. Jesus came along and says, guess what? I'll do it. I'll die in your place. I'll pay for all of your sins, your flops, failures, and fumbles. I'll pay for all the woes in the past, all those in the present, and all those you can't even think about right now in the future. Folks, you and I have a a replacement. And that's good news, isn't it? Because now you and I can quit nailing ourselves to the cross because Jesus has been nailed for us. Some of the very last words of Jesus on the cross were were these, tetelestai. It is a legal term that describes a bill being paid off. Let me ask you this. When Jesus, let me ask you this. When you pay off your bills, Do you worry about them? I hope not. No, you forget about them. Why? Because they're paid off. When Jesus was on the cross, he said, Tetelestai. It's finished. It's done. It's paid for. And then the Bible says he breathed his last. It was a done deal. Now, that is good news that Jesus became your replacement. Why? It's because people are dying to hear these three words. And I want you to think of these for your own life, but I want you to think about this relationally too because we'll get there. You see, most people have never heard these three words. They've never experienced it in their inner being. I forgive you. I forgive you. When you accept Jesus Christ and you drop him from your head into your heart, when you ask him to be your replacement, he says to you, I forgive you. And you and I need that to live the good life. You want to know why? Because the most paralyzing emotion that you and I have is guilt. It paralyzes us. And so God comes along and he says, I forgive you. I never intended for you to live life under guilt because you can't have the good life and feel guilty at the same time. Folks, what a deal. Take a look at 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God took the sinless Christ and poured into him our sins. In exchange, he poured God's goodness into us. That's the good life. The second benefit of the cross is redemption. And redemption says, Jesus bought my freedom. Take a look at 1 Timothy 2, verse 6. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. 
Now, in the Greek, the word redemption refers to a slave that's being sold in the marketplace. And in a spiritual sense, you and I are slaves. You might sit here and think, well, I'm not a slave. Well, yes, you are. Take a look at 2 Peter chapter, chapter 2, verse 19. You are a slave to whatever controls you. So, let me rephrase that question. What's controlling you? Is it your schedule? Folks, a lot of people in our community or our culture are controlled by their schedules, okay? They're chasing their tails around, okay? Some people are controlled by their past, by guilt, by families, by peers. Whatever is controlling you, you are a slave to. And yet the Bible comes along and says, Jesus is your redemption. He died on the cross for your freedom. Now, we're getting ready to enter into the, the holiday season. And I know many of you are going to be at the Stonebriar Mall on Black Friday, okay? Not that I know that personally. I don't go to that place, okay? I order everything online. It's just easier. It's, it's the way to do it, okay? But let's just say you're there. And you are going shopping, and it's center court. And you know what I'm talking about. It's that one down in the well. It's down at the bottom, okay? You see a platform, and they're selling people, slaves. And they're selling you. You jump up on the podium, and you are scared to death. You're looking at people, and you begin to think, you know what? I don't think they're looking at me as a person. They're looking at me as a thing. And you're right. The auction begins. People start bidding. Someone bids some price. And you look at that person in the eyes and you think, are they going to be kind to me or are they going to be cruel to me? But then you realize, you know what? It doesn't really matter because they're going to use me for their purpose. They're going to use me to work me to death. They're going to use me to satisfy maybe one of their habits. They're just going to use me up. And as the auction begins, these are the thoughts that go through your mind. But then all of a sudden, a stranger stands up and he bids a billion dollars, higher than anybody else. And this auctioneer knows he's got a good deal. And he slams down the mount and says, sold. And as you look at that stranger in the eyes who bought you for a billion plus dollars, you realize that he didn't buy you to use you. But he bought you to set you free. That's what Jesus came to do. And that deals with the disease of compulsion. Take a look at, uh, take a look at Psalms 49. We can never redeem ourselves. We cannot pay God the price for our lives because the payment for human life is too great. Jesus bought, paid for your life with his life blood to set you free, to set you free from compulsions so you could live the good life. He's given us a symbol, cross, but he's given us the Lord's Supper. You see, the Lord's Supper is a symbol kind of two things. It is a symbol of the price that he paid to set you free. 
but it's also a symbol and a reminder that one day he's going to come back because like I shared at Western Kentucky State University with that communist, Jesus isn't in the tomb. He resurrected. And one day he's going to come back and he's going to offer these elements to us. And we're going to rejoice in the fact that he took our place and that he redeemed us. He bought us back. Ushers, I want us to come come forward at this time. And as a spiritual family, let's reflect on the freedom that we have. We live in the land of the free. We, we in essence, can do anything that we want. Come on, well, let's, let's go ahead and pass them out. We'll pass them out, okay? I'm so excited. I got so much material going through my brain right now. We're going to take this as one family. And you're going to pull, pull up, really it looks like one cup, but two cups. The bottom one has the bread, and the top one has the juice. And let's wait till everyone's served, and then I'll read a portion out of 1 Corinthians 11. But as they're serving, I want you to reflect on the freedom that you have. Like I said, you know what? We live in the land of the free. We can, in essence, do anything we want. We can sleep in. We can go to church, not go to church. We can watch the Cowboys game. We can send our kids to private schools, public schools, homeschool. We can vote or not vote. We live in a place of freedom. God purchased our freedom for us to set us free so that we could live a good life. And we have one. And as the elements are being passed out, I want to encourage you to just take a moment and thank God for the freedom that you have in Him. Because He paid the ultimate price for it. Let's pray. Let's reflect.
For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the juice. Lord, we are thankful that you were willing to enter into our world, to give of yourself, to take our sins upon you, that we might be purchased, that we might be set free from the compulsions of our life, that we might be in relationship with you, that we might know that the purpose for which you have created us, that we might enter into it, God, be a difference maker, not just personally and not just in our own families, but in the world, God. And so we thank you that we as a spiritual family can come together and remember the ultimate sacrifice that you paid for our freedom. May we always be and have gratefulness in our hearts towards you. In your son's name we pray, amen. And so Jesus, on the cross, replaced our sins. He was our replacement. And then he redeemed us. He bought us back. The third benefit of the cross is this, reconciliation. And reconciliation says he restores my relationship with him. He restores my relationship with him. You see, reconciliation is about two parties that are in conflict with one another but have been brought together and now are at peace. You see, whenever I do something at home that ticks my wife off, which is very rare, what it does is it breaks down our relationship. And though we might I don't know, live under the same roof, sleep in the same bed, eat at the same dinner table, what is needed to restore that relationship is reconciliation. Now, if the truth were known, a lot of people really need that with God because they feel like God is distant. They feel like God is a gazillion million miles away, okay? That when they pray, their prayers just hit the roof and and just come back. Can I just say this? If you feel that that God is distant in your life, guess who moved? The Bible says that our sins have separated us from God. We're the ones that have turned our back on God. We're the ones that have run, so to speak, away from him. And yet the cool thing is this, that God doesn't wait on you to restore the relationship. Folks, he takes the initiative. When Cheryl hurts me, 
which she's practically perfect in every way. She's only hurt me one time, okay? Because because she's human. But when she hurts me, guess what I do? I wait for her to take the initiative. When I hurt her, guess what I do? I wait for her to take the initiative. (laughs) Either way, I wait, okay? But that's not true with God. God has taken the initiative. Why? Because he wants to be your friend. Take a look at Romans chapter 5 and verse 10. We were God's enemies, but he made us his friends through the death of his son. Now, how does that work? Well, it's like I said, when you have two parties that are in conflict with one another, what you and I need is a mediator, and Jesus has become our mediator. He has become our bridge to bring us together where we are friends with God. I want you to take a look at this verse. Take a look at 2 Corinthians 5, 18. It says, Christ changed us from enemies into his friends and gave us the task of making others his friends also. Our message, will you circle that, is that God is making all human beings his friends through Christ. God did not keep an account of their sins, and he has given us the message, circle that, the message which tells us how he makes us his friends. Folks, what is that message? It's the good news. It's the gospel. It's the gospel of peace. We're going to talk about peace at Christmas. We're going to address, we're going to address the issue of division in our country. And we're going to start with the cross, and then we're going to talk about prayer, and then we're going to talk about the power of the gospel, which is the, the power of gospel unto salvation, to freedom of real peace. And then we're going to wrap it up Christmas Eve, and you don't want to miss that night. But it's the message. It brings people together. As I have peace with God, then it enables me to have peace with others. I want you to listen to this story of Christian a young man who allowed the peace of God to come in to give him peace with his family. Take a look at this. I was born in Orl- uh, Winter Park, Florida, which is outside of Orlando in 1991. Um, my dad was born and raised there, and my mom moved there when she was 14. I came to know the Lord when I was about seven years old. My sister started talking to me about it, and of course, I was raised in a very uh, faith-based evangelical family. I mean, my, both my parents knew the Lord, and um, but I was young and didn't know anything, and kind of, I guess I kind of knew, and so I you know, accepted the Lord in my heart when I was seven. But it really wasn't until I was 13, we had moved to um, Bartlesville, Oklahoma. I was homeschooled. Uh, I would have been a terrible thing for me to have gone to public school because I was very, uncontrollable, I was very wild, and I would have been in a lot of trouble. I kind of didn't walk away from the Lord, but I just stopped, you know, walking my faith. And um, I was 16, and uh, I was just, I was a mess. A um, job in Kentucky, we were redoing a foundation, and my mom said, can you come down to Atlanta? and uh, help me take care of your grandparents. I said, sure, I'll come down and help. I was down there, I helped take care of him. He was, you know, 85 and, you know, helping him do stuff. And 
grandparents came back and I was like, okay, mom, let's, let's go home. I'm ready to go home. And she was like, yeah, you're not going. I was like, what? And she was like, yeah, you need to stay here and you can go talk to your grandpa about it. And my grandpa was like, yeah, your attitude is way out of control and you need Jesus. You know, up, up late at night talking with my grandfather who, you know, had, had his years and years of rebellion against the Lord and finally had surrendered his life, he just started talking to me and I just, I had no words for, you know, what I was, I was actually seeing what I was saying and what I was doing and I was like, this is so wrong. The weirdest thing was is about a month or two after I got there, my grandfather was riding his bike and he had a serious bike accident where he fell off and you know, he scraped himself up good. It wasn't like he broke anything, but it was serious in the fact that it jarred a tumor in his lung. And he went, uh, he was you know, coughing up blood, arrhythmia, and he went to an oncologist and he found out he had stage four lung cancer and they gave him six months to live. Through that, I saw my grandfather in a totally different life. I saw a man who was losing his life. He was 70, or 70 years old, 70, 69, 70 years old. And you know, he had spent most of his life living for himself. And you know, these are the years that he is rediscovering his life through Jesus and you know, making amends for the things that he had done wrong in his past. You know, I'm sitting here, you know, in my life, you know, I've, I haven't done anything like what he did. And, uh, but I'm seeing, you know, a man transformed because of the power of Jesus. And, you know, now he's, you know, has six months to live. I, I was just dumbfounded. I started purposely being uh, and living uh, with respect for uh, the authority, honoring my mom, my dad, my grandparents, everybody around me, treating other, everybody with respect. Before I came to know Jesus, I was, I was lost and I didn't know, um, I knew of Jesus, but I didn't know how great he was, how powerful, I didn't see, I, I didn't experience him. That's the most important thing in this life, your job, your house, your car, anything, that doesn't mean squat, it'll all burn and go away, but your relationship with Jesus will stand the test of time and it will stand the fire if you remain faithful. I love Christian's story. And I think the thing that just impacts me as I heard him share that wasn't, again, not to take away from the gospel. It's the gospel that transforms people's lives. But it was the fact that his grandfather shared it. He shared the message of Jesus Christ that eventually brought peace into Christian's heart that enabled him to have peace with his family. Peace with God, peace with others. The fourth benefit of the cross is rebirth. And this deals with the heart disease of confusion. And it talks about our identity. And identity is a big thing in our culture, isn't it? We protect it. We want to discover it. We want to change it. We want to hide from our identity, okay? The world or our culture judges identity basically on four levels. What we do, what we possess, what we know, and how we look. And yet our identity is much deeper than those things, isn't it? It really is. At its core, our identity is on a spiritual level. And why is that? Because it's born in the heart of God. 
Before the creation of the foundations of this world and universe, God had us in mind. God is spirit, and he thought of us. The core of our identity is at a spiritual level. And when you and I come into relationship with Jesus Christ, it changes us at the core of our being, so much so that Jesus describes it as a becoming a new person. Take a look at second or take a look at first or Titus 3 5 and 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. God saved us because of his mercy and not because of any good things that we have done. He washed us by the power of the Holy Spirit. He gave us a new birth and a fresh beginning. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Anyone who belongs to Christ becomes a new person. The past is forgotten and everything is new. What that means is once you establish a relationship with Christ, when you drop him from your head to your heart, there is a transaction that takes place where you become a new person. At the core of your being, you become new. You see, you aren't who you think you are, and you're not who others say you are. You are who God says you are. And your identity is rooted at, at a spiritual level. That's why I tell, I, I, honestly, I tell couples, I says, you know what, they may look hot now, but wait till they're 50, year, 50 years from now, okay? There's physical and there's emotional unity or intimacy. But the greatest intimacy is spiritual. And that is where, as you develop it as individuals with friends, with, in a marriage, that is where soul-to-soul relationships start. Because at the core of who you and I are, our identity is rooted in God. Now to get there, there is one word and there are two steps. The word is faith. When by faith we accept Jesus Christ into our life. And when by faith we accept who he says we are. And again, we're not who we are who we think we are, and we're not who other people say we are. We are who God says we are. And folks, that's good news. Because Jesus took my punishment. It deals with my worthlessness. Because Jesus bought my freedom. That deals with my compulsions. Because Jesus restores my relationship. That deals with the heart disease of loneliness. Because Jesus gives me a new identity. That deals with my aimlessness and and a new purpose in life. The fifth benefit is repudiation. And this means that his death, or this means he defeated death and the devil. Take a look at 1 John 3, 8. The Son of God come, came for this purpose. This is why Jesus entered into the world. The Son of came for this purpose, to destroy the devil's work. What is the devil's work? I can tell you what it is. It's to mess up your heart. It's to mess up your heart and fill you with worry and guilt and resentment and anger and confusion, helping you to feel worthless and and aimless and hopeless and powerless and restless. That's what the devil came to do. And Satan's biggest goal or Satan's biggest tool to get you there is one word, fear. 
And yet God is the opposite of fear. The Bible says that God is love and perfect love casts out fear. And it's when you and I understand the love of God that he has communicated to us through the cross helps us as we deal in a messed up world with messed up hearts. You see, I say this, when the fear of the world starts running in, run to God. Take a look at Romans chapter 6, verse 9. We know that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was the signal of death as the end. Never again will death have the last word. You see, the thing that we fear the most is death. And Jesus says, I've solved it. I'm going to heal your heart and I'm going to defeat the ultimate death itself. And so when you are filled with fear and you're feeling worthless and hopeless and helpless and powerless and, and, and restless, the cross communicates to you and I that we are valuable, lovable, forgivable, capable, and we are usable. God wants to use you. He wants to use you to share the message of reconciliation, to bring peace into this world, to give hope. I want to pause as we close. We've been in the last couple of years of Beyond Our Walls campaign. And I want to thank you for your giving. But God is using this church to bring peace in our community. Thank you for the giving that built and re helped us renovate the student center that students are bringing other students to where they're coming to know Christ. I mean, 13 got baptized, I don't know, two or three weeks ago. This focus this week is the money that you've given. You know what? It doesn't stay with just within the walls of this church. It goes on the outside, helping a sponsor outrun homelessness, helping to adopt a family. Do you realize that we've adopted two families in the last, I don't know, about five, four, three years that were homeless, that now have jobs and are in the level of significance? That's your giving. And there are other things that happen. In fact, this Christmas, I, I want to encourage you to come because I'm working with the police department. The police are on the front lines of dealing with homelessness in our community. And one of the things I'm talking about them with is this. When it gets 32 degrees, they have to get the homeless people off the streets. Did you know that? There's no ordinance saying that they can't be there, but they have no place to go because all the places are filled. And so I'm working with the police department now to raise funds so that we can give them certificates that when it gets to 32 and below, they can give them a certificate to go to a hotel and spend the night. God wants to use our church to make a difference in this world. And this is what the cross does, folks. It makes us valuable, it makes us lovable, it makes us forgivable, it makes us capable, it makes us usable. And so let's be Christ to each other, let's be Christ to this community. Let's pray. Lord, my heart is just overflowed this morning with your goodness towards my life and towards our life. You have blessed us richly. 
And yet, so often, God, we just walk by, maybe a cross, we wear it around our neck, and we don't even give thought to what it really has done in our life. God, produce in us a grateful spirit. Produce in us such an awareness of your love for us, God, that we can't help but share it wherever we go. I don't know where you're at in your journey with God, but maybe today as you look at your life in terms of a car and you see all the four wheels starting to wobble and about ready to fall off, today you can begin to have healing in your heart as you surrender to Jesus, as you drop him from your head to your heart. And if you haven't done that, will you do that today? Just say something as simple as this. Jesus, I admit that I failed, that I've hurt you, that I've hurt others, and God, I've hurt myself, but I believe that you died on the cross for me. And I want you to be my heart surgeon now and heal my achy, breaky heart. And if you said that in your own words, Jesus heard you, will you on your communication card. Just let me know. Write your name, maybe an email address, and write the letter A circling and saying, I've accepted Jesus. And when I get him the first part of the week, I'll help you understand what you've just done. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for your great love for us to enter into our world. We give you this. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.